Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Don Rismiller joining us here in New York, Strategus Research Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Don. Morning. Can we begin with that headline out of Germany? Why do we have to wait for the crisis? Why do we have to wait for the recession (laughs) for them to loosen the purse strings? Oh, it's an excellent, excellent question. And so the answer is we shouldn't have to. uh, But there have been political reasons in the past that have meant we have not been preemptive globally. So I think the issue here is now you have the Bundesbank and others saying we may be getting to some sort of crisis. It doesn't have to be as bad as the last crisis. But that's what I think is being used to justify that this time could be different. There's enough intellectual support. There's enough academic support for some sort of spending. Fiscal policy is clearly the right answer in a world where monetary policy looks exhausted. And I'd say if you look at the amount of negative yielding debt in the world, monetary policy is looking exhausted. Yeah, looking at the German 10 yield, negative uh, 0.639%. So we've seen that for a long period of time. Don, I mean, so if I'm Germany, am I, to what extent am I discounting uh, a hard Brexit at this point? Because it seems like some of the rhetoric coming out of the UK is that is still very much on the table. Yeah, and certainly that has to be part of any contingency plan. Right? So if you're thinking about what could cause a crisis, that's just a few months away here. Even if it's not the hard Brexit, you're seeing a slowdown in the economy that's been affected by some of the uncertainty created by it, and that's impacted investment, and that's filtered through to the European economy. So hard or not, I think you're discounting some of those drags, whether they're coming uh, from the UK side or the, the China side, which is a whole other story. The mood of the markets is better this morning, but overwhelmingly, I'd say over the last couple of months, investors, economists desperately looking, searching for a policy anchor. We have had a policy anchor throughout this whole expansion over the last 10 years, whether it was the Federal Reserve, whether it was China and its spending and its stimulus package, or whether it was the tax cuts of a couple of years ago. Where does that policy anchor come from now? Because quite clearly, Chairman Powell is struggling to be that guy, struggling to distinguish what that policy actually is. Yeah, so that's an important point that markets like normal distributions. They like a central tendency with tail outcomes that aren't all that likely. And In the world today, we have some things that look not normal, whether it's Brexit, where you could have a variety of tail outcomes, whether it's what's going on in Hong Kong, where there could be tail outcomes that are quite different. It's hard to find what the central tendency is. And unfortunately, it may come back to central banks, at least in the near term. Fiscal policy can be an important tool, but it's going to take time. Even in the German case, monetary policy has to be that anchor. That's the worry right now for a lot of people as to whether that can actually work. The the theme of Jackson Hole this Friday, the challenges of monetary policy. The current dynamic globally, the issues we have in this global economy, that is the ultimate challenge for monetary policy. Can they really address it with monetary policy? So maybe we have to define what we mean by work here. And so I do think monetary policy could take care of an inverted yield curve. I think that is within the control of monetary policy. Are we going to cut interest rates and have lower interest rates spur investment that's much less clear. It's not clear that the problem there is the interest rate. It's the amount of uncertainty that's inhibiting CEOs and CFOs from making some of the decisions they would otherwise make. So I think monetary policy has a role. I think monetary policy in particular with an inverted yield curve that's starting to come out of that position on the assumption that monetary policy could work has a role, Uh, but monetary policy can't do it all. 
So Don, I mean, coming out of uh, or going into uh, Jackson Hole on Friday, what type of language do you think we're going to get from Chairman Powell? I think most of market participants are thinking about the next meeting will be 25 basis points, perhaps uh, 50 basis points, given some of the uncertainty that we've seen just in the last couple of weeks, I guess, in the marketplace. What kind of language and body language, more importantly, do you think we're going to get from Chairman Powell? So I think the market would love to see something that would uh, make a 50 basis point cut uh, the right answer, but I don't think we're going to get that. I don't think the Fed wants to guide towards a 50 basis point cut uh, here. That's an emergency move, and we don't have the financial crisis right now that would justify that, maybe in the future, but not right now. So I think they want to be vigilant, but I don't think the language is going to be a whatever-it-takes type of outcome here. Outside of Chairman Powell, we haven't heard very much from the governors and the board around him. Don, do you think there is a disagreement on the FOMC that has been covered up over the last couple of weeks. We haven't heard much from the key players at the Federal Reserve. What do you think the reason is for that? So there has been disagreement, and we had two dissents on the last vote. Usually the disagreement happens within the the regions, so the regional Fed presidents who could say, in my district, things look one way versus another, would come in, fly in for the meeting, and vote a certain way, maybe dissent on uh, We got that, that from decision. the Boston Fed President, Eric Rosengren, who incidentally will be speaking to Bloomberg later on this afternoon, but carry on, Don, please. That's right, yeah. So uh, that happens uh, from time to time. Uh, often the vote is unanimous, but not always. And so one or two dissents uh, is something that happens. But those dissents usually come from the regional Fed. Uh, folks, the group that all sit next to each other in Washington, D.C., the, the Board of Governors, uh, very rarely dissent. And I think that's because they talk over some of their differences being in uh, the same physical location. I do think that that matters and that lets the chair guide uh, the committee. So I, I do think there is some uncertainty, depending on whether you look at the economic indicators, the typical numbers like jobs and consumer spending, or whether you look at financial market indicators like the yield curve. And that tension, I think, is what is uh, driving some of this disagreement. So, Don, where do you stand in terms of outlook for a recession in the next 12 to 18 months in the U.S.? Because as John let, let off the show, I mean, you know, we took look, look at Europe uh, weaker, maybe perhaps than expected, China slowing. How do you kind of view the U.S. economy going into 2020? So with the yield curve inverted, we thought of it like you're holding your breath. You okay. can do this for a little while. And so you, uh, inverted curve, uh, especially when we look at the three-month to 10-year versus the two-year to 10-year, is telling us that there needs to be some policy action. The Fed should cut interest rates. But if they cut interest rates, we don't have to have a recession. So the fact that we're holding our breath here means we could come up for air. That's a higher chance of recession. That's a little more dangerous than average. Uh, but I don't think recession is the base case, given that the consumer still looks to be in good shape. Hey, Don, great to catch up with you. Don Rismiller there, Strategist Research Chief Economist, ahead of a key week for the Federal Reserve. According to two people with direct knowledge of the matter, the German government is getting ready to act to shore up the economy by preparing a fiscal stimulus package that could be triggered by, drumroll, a deep recession. <laughs> Klaus Fistessen joining us now, Pantheon Macroeconomics, chief Eurozone economist. Klaus, always love to get your insight. Why, oh why, oh why do we have to wait for a deep recession to do fiscal stimulus in Germany? Yeah, that's, that's, it, it, it is very German. I, I do think that what's happening now, though, is that we're seeing kind of a, a sequence by which 
it's very likely that Germany is, is in a technical recession. We don't know yet, but it's very likely that's going to happen. And now then, what we're seeing is is um, is slow movement towards um, towards fiscal stimulus. I mean, the answer to your question is simply that um, the the things that normally trigger fiscal stimulus in sort of a normal uh, in sort of a normal economic context is the labor market. The labor market is like an indicator. So if Germany is now in a technical recession and where growth has been slowing for since from the last for the last six to nine months. I mean, it takes it takes a while before the labor market starts to starts to show uh, show show an effect of that. And um, this is exactly what we're probably going to see in the next six to twelve months. So that's when you'll see uh, the fiscal stimulus kick in. But just to get the dates, I mean, what we're hearing here now is going to affect the 2020 budgets probably. Right. This is pretty much as quick as they can do it. I think. So, Klaus, I agree with you, and I think many people would. The optics of this are encouraging. The fact that the German government is even having the conversation is encouraging mm-hmm. and perhaps builds some optimism. But let's just be a little bit clear on what you think this is contingent on. At the moment, our reporting is suggesting it will be triggered by a deep recession. Are you saying it could be triggered by something a whole lot less severe than that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I'm, I, I don't put a lot of emphasis on on this the, the, that adjective deep recession. I mean, fact of the matter is, Germany has had zero growth since the middle of last year. It's probably in a technical recession now. We don't really know. Uh, the labor market is already starting to suffer a little bit and probably will suffer more going forward. And, and that'll probably be enough for Germany to do something. But just to put some numbers on this, one number that's been bandied around is the sort of the 55 billion to 60 billion of stimulus. We don't really know what that's supposed to do, but that's 2% of GDP, which would mean that Germany would go from from a surplus to balanced budget, right? So, I mean, the numbers we've seen so far is still fairly modest uh, in terms of sort of, uh, of, of where we are now. So, Klaus, just give us a sense, some background of kind of what's been happening in the German economy over the last uh, 18 months in terms of manufacturing and the consumer. What's kind of tilting uh, the German government to think about this type of stimulus? Well, but then, and this is one of the issues for the German government because the domestic economy has actually held up all right, which is to say the consumer has, has been doing okay. The construction sector up until very recently has been doing okay, although I think that's rolling over now. But it's been all manufacturing and, and net exports. And... In some sense, if you are an export-oriented economy, and Germany is probably the world's most export-oriented economy, and, and you get a hit to the extent for, um, and, and to, uh, to external demand, while you're at full employment, um, and, and so, you, you, so the government's ability to, to come out quickly uh, with, with a fiscal stimulus program to, to counteract that is, not, um, um, is limited a little bit. Also, if you look at a sort of economic orthodoxy in Germany, is that you know, this is why a lot of German politicians have been telling us, well, you know, there's not much we can do. We just have to ride this out. Although, again, to, to, to this, this conversation we're having here, I do think that's changing. But yeah, net exports, manufacturing uh, are the two areas where Germany has really suffered in, in the last uh, six to nine months. So, uh, Klaus, just give us a sense of that $55 billion number to the extent that that's somewhat accurate. Yeah. Just give us a sense of what you think that could do to uh, the economy over the next couple of years, how helpful it could be, how stimulative it could be. 
yeah, so the fifty-five billion uh, number that's banding around, I have to assume that's that's going to be sort of a standard uh, Keynesian stopgap in in terms of sort of tax cuts, things that that work immediately, right? Uh, because I think there are two stories here. There are things that Germany can do in the short run that that would work very quickly in terms of getting growth up, um, sort of uh, that's tax cuts uh, for the for the low to middle income, perhaps an increase in social transfers. Also, remember Germany has very strong automatic stabilizers that kick in if job job uh, jobless claims start to increase. That that'll also shield the German economy a little bit. But that's not what we're really talking about here. If you look at the story in general, the idea is that Germany is supposed to you know, do this multi-year uh, infrastructure spending in, in, its, uh, in its autobahns or whatever, its, its, its broadband or like climate change or more defense. I mean, that's great, but I mean, you're not going to see me or any other Eurozone forecasters move the needle on, on our economic forecast if that, because that takes... I mean that takes a long time to come, to come through. So there are kind of two stories here, and one thing I'll say is obviously that the bond market is really trading this now, which I think is really fascinating. In some sense, given where bond yields are now, I think yeah. you know more fiscal talk can really unsettle that market. But you know markets will be disappointed with whatever Germany does because markets now expect a lot. I think in terms, I want a lot. There's a there's a normative narrative here that Germany really ought to do a lot, and I think that well, it might be difficult for them to 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 fulfil those expectations. Class, we've got to talk about how you define success as well. Morgan Stanley's Rishi Sharma writing in the New York Times over the weekend a really interesting article about some of the challenges the global economy faces, including Germany, an economy, a country that faces a shrinking labour force, and. Rishi Sharma writing the following, that 46 countries around the world, including major powers like Japan, Russia and China, now have shrinking populations. And with that in mind, Klaus, whether we can just look at GDP figures, inflation figures and decide whether a country is failing or succeeding, whether we need to redefine the metrics that we use to define success and failure, Klaus, does that resonate with you? No, 100%. I mean, preach. I mean, that this is this is the main story for me. And I think that um, we, there are kind of two two elements of this story. One is that 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 element of the story, which I think is completely turned in 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 in, Euro, in the eurozone now, trend growth is probably in a structural uh, in a structural decline because the working age population is not is not rising anymore. But you still have uh, a central bank uh, that is uh, pursuing the same inflation target as it was 10 to 15 years ago. This is the same thing in Japan. They're not reaching it, so therefore they reach for net more and more negative interest rates, more and more QE creates a lot of excess liquidity, flows out into the global economy, and 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 uh, and that you know, and then now you have politicians in the U.S. and especially Trump, you're very grumpy about uh, trade deficits and, and trade imbalances. And oddly enough, uh, we are now uh, moving towards a situation where it seems like we're more likely to double down, right? We're more likely to double down with even more stimulus, even more fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus in order to try to to counterbalance this story. And I just think that. Yeah, no, I so I agree with that sentiment. I mean, it's not it's not going to be it's not clear to me where that you know nominal growth of whatever we want it to be five to six percent in the eurozone is going to come from. I mean, it, I don't see it anywhere, no matter what we do. And and so maybe that's that that's 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 a that's a tricky world for markets to navigate. But I think the main story is that so far we're much more likely to get more stimulus than less stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, because that's kind of like where we're, where we're going. And Sharma's making that argument as well, that potentially this just leads to more fruitless stimulus campaigns. And class, I guess my final question for you is how many more fruitless stimulus campaigns do we need to have to get some of these central banks to look away from dated metrics for whether they're succeeding or failing? 
Well, quite a lot. I mean, I think so. Look at the ECB. We're having a change of guard now. Obviously, Draghi's out and Madame Lagarde is coming in. I mean, we don't really know what she thinks about them, but the different, different things. But it's much more likely, I think, that we're going to get more of the same than less. Um, and and or let me put it like this: If we're going to get less, I mean, bond markets are a sitting duck here, and then this is, you know, in some sense, markets have already made made up their mind, and at the moment, policymakers are just following their lead. So, you know, I think you know more of the same, right? Hey, Klaus, great to catch up with this conversation. We'll continue, and if we get more of the same, I imagine some of these arguments are going nowhere. Pantheon macroeconomist, chief eurozone economist, joining us from the UK there. So much to look forward to through the week. All of it really centered around the Federal Reserve and the U.S. economy. Joining us to weigh in, Lara Rain, FS Investments Chief, U.S. Economist. Good morning to you, Lara. Just walk me through what you're looking for this week. The minutes are really going to be the focus. And I think news from the rest of the developed world. We've had news overnight that Germany is considering a stimulus package. I think that we have to keep in mind the last several large moves that we've had in the U.S., have come from non-U.S. data points. So we're really focused on this idea of a global slowdown, global market moves, and really pessimism in the global bond market. So, Larry, let's focusing on Jackson Hole this week. Obviously, as you mentioned, the minutes will be critically important. What kind of tone do you think we're going to get uh, from the Fed and from Chairman Powell? You know, I think it's going to be a tone that takes us back to a time before we had the tenure at close to one and a half percent. It's a time when there was a lot less cohesion on the Fed about what the next rate move should be. Remember, we had two dissenters at that meeting in favor of not changing rates. So surely there will be a much more active discussion at that FOMC meeting with some participants thinking that the economy, domestic economy, was strong enough to not uh, move rates at all. I think what we're going to look at is a really... um, you know, this difference between reacting to the fundamentals of the U.S. economy versus a lot of the concern that we're seeing from financial markets and volatility coming from abroad. On Friday, the headline, the topic, the theme of this year's Jackson Hole Symposium, the challenges of monetary policy. And I just wonder, Lara, whether that is the ultimate challenge of monetary policy right now, that these central banks don't really have the tools to address some of the economic challenges we have globally and front and center, that challenge being trade. I completely agree with you. I think I've long said that monetary policy gets both too much credit and too much blame. The reality is that some of the big problems these economies are having, like slowing labor force growth, low productivity, even the trade tensions that we're seeing rock equity markets, the Fed can only really put a Band-Aid on what is a very uh, big, a larger psychological break. Um, and the tools that they have simply are not going to be able to ease a lot of the bigger problems that we have. Really, the big concern is that over the long run, we're making a policy mistake by expending valuable ammunition uh, with Fed rate cuts when really they're not going to impact what is causing the larger volatility and financial discomfort. So, Lara, do you expect, I mean, you know, I think there's a growing concern that the U.S. economy has generally been uh, slowing, obviously, but generally very strong, certainly relative to what we're seeing in Europe, for example, or even a slowing growth in China. What odds do you kind of put at a U.S. recession in the next 12 to 18 months? 
I am still in the camp that expects the U.S. economy to slow, uh, potentially to uncomfortably low levels, but to avoid a recession. We may get one quarter of negative growth somewhere in the middle of 2020, but I think we're still looking at full-year growth this year of 2% and next year uh, maybe more like 1%. I think to get a recession, we're going to need a real event to happen. But, you know, you can't fight gravity with the rest of the world slowing. And I don't know what the arc of Europe's slowdown will be, but certainly the headlines and the data are looking worse than many of us had expected. So it's hard to fight that gravity. It is going to impact the U.S. economy. And particularly these large cap stocks are going to be impacted because they're, for all intents and purposes, international. So, Lara, for the chairman this week at Jackson Hole, that speech on Friday, what do you think the challenge, the objective should be for him going into this weekend? I mean, he is in a tough spot because markets have clearly priced in aggressive Fed rate cuts. After the FOMC meeting, he worked hard to uh, really limit market expectations and walk those back. I think we're going to need to see if he sticks to his mid-cycle adjustment language, which would imply one, maybe two more rate cuts this year, or if he's really on board with the fact that the U.S. is now in danger of slipping into a recession, which would imply a much more radical rate cut trajectory. And Lara, just real quickly, what is your sense? I know it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, but your sense on kind of trade and how this plays out over the you know next several months, or is this something that's going to be a post-2020 election? I I think this is really, you know, we are now in this ground war for the long haul. I think, you know, there were deep divisions um, going into any kind of negotiations. And we may get a short-term sort of trade deal announced, almost like a a mission accomplished on the aircraft carrier. Right. Um, But a lasting, enduring trade agreement, I think, is quite far away at this point. Hey, Lara, great to catch up with you to get your thoughts on another key week for the global economy. Lara Rain there, FS Investments Chief, U.S. Economist. Going back to this story with Apple, uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook uh, had dinner apparently uh, Friday night with President Trump at the President's Golf Club in New Jersey. Uh, I don't see it reported that they played golf, but what they did do is talk trade. They talked tariffs. uh, And I think Mr. Cook was clearly trying to make the argument that tariffs are not good for Apple and certainly put them at a competitive disadvantage against some of their competitors, including Samsung uh, Electronics. So to dig a little bit deeper about what this could mean for Apple, uh, we turn to Rob Schiffman. Rob covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence on the credit side. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. First of all, just give us a sense from, you know, from a, the business perspective, you're looking at the balance sheet and the P&L, how much do these tariffs, if they go full effect, Will they have a big impact on Apple? Uh, Thanks, Paul. You know, the reality is from a bondholder's perspective, it almost doesn't make a difference. From a stockholder's perspective, though, it makes a huge difference in terms of growth rate and trajectory. What Trump is clearly trying to do is get stocks to stay up high, and there's no better way to do it than to try to prop up Apple. So if there's a concept that you're going to have lower tariffs on Apple, and product costs are going to be lower. Christmas is going to be booming for uh, the company. 
and help rise the entire uh, the hot entire market. I think when you think about it from a bottled perspective, as you know, I'm a credit guy. It's almost Christmas every day because Apple just continues to generate massive amounts of free cash flow. So regardless of what the tariff situation is, um, we we don't see much risk to Apple's massive cash flow. I think when you're projecting out revenues from quarter to quarter, you're going to have significant ebbs and flows. And quite frankly, the equity market consistently has just gotten Apple's growth trajectory in the near term wrong. And you see that by by big bounces in volatility of its stock price. When you start looking over an extended period of time, let's just say 12, 18, 24 months, I think there's less questions about longer-term growth rates of Apple, and we can sort of wash through short-term tariff issues. So when you take a look at the balance sheet here, I'm looking on the, on the Bloomberg terminal here, and I see uh, as of June 30th, uh, about $108 billion of total debt. That's a big number. But then I look up a little bit higher on the balance sheet and the cash, I see $210 billion of cash. And you mentioned that I'm also looking on the terminal here about $60 billion of free cash flow for Apple. So with that kind of free cash flow, why does Apple even go to the debt market? Well, they haven't since 2017. Post-tax repatriation changes, they haven't funded, um, nor have some of the other big tech uh, players as well. You know, Microsoft hasn't been in the market. Amazon hasn't been in the market. Cisco hasn't been in the market. Um, the concept of bringing stuck cash back from international coffers is no longer an issue. So what you're seeing are companies trending towards lower absolute debt balances. The problem that, that Apple has is that they generate so much cash every single quarter, it's hard to meet their goal. Their goal is to get to a cash neutral position. As you just said, uh, their cash position right now, still over 200 billion, is well over 100 billion more than what their debt position is. So if every quarter they're pumping in an incremental $15 billion of free cash, how do they get there? Uh, they just re-upped their buyback program in May to another $100 billion. You know, our sense is that it's going to take multiple years for Apple to get to a cash-neutral position. You know, you could get there a bit quicker if you use your cash to pay down debt as well, and they've been doing that. You can see their total debt balances have shrunk almost $20 billion over the last couple of years, and I think that will, will happen, but I don't see them coming back to the debt market. Quite frankly, uh, unlike other tech players, there's no M&A for them. Yep. Uh, there's just, I think there's well, massive- Well, they could go out and buy a big media company, which well, a lot of people and, speculate about, and that would be a- Listen, yeah. we'd love to see it uh, <laughs> because it would be more interesting, but I just don't see that happening. I think they have enough organic growth potential um, that they don't need to spend their money buying it. There's a lot of other companies that, that need to do that, right. like a Broadcom or an IBM, uh, or, or maybe even uh, an Oracle or eventually an Intel, but I, I don't see that for, for Apple. Again, it's, it's Christmas every single day. You exactly. keep getting so much cash. I think they're going to meaningfully increase this buyback program, though, over the next two years. $100 billion might grow to $150 or $175 billion program 
uh, 18 months out. Because for these tech companies, when they throw out these huge numbers, like $100 billion buyback, that A, that, that is a big number, certainly, and it does reduce the flow. But they also are issuing stock all the time, stock-based compensation, which is a big part of the compensation structure in Silicon Valley. So a lot of the buyback is just kind of offsetting the new stock coming onto the marketplace. Is Apple actually reducing its share count? So the answer is yes, but it's relative to cash flows, it's still somewhat meaningless. Yep. So there's... Um, there's a lot of stock to buy back just to keep the company neutral in terms of shares outstanding. They're buying back massively uh, in excess of what compensation issues are. Um, so I don't really think that's the worry. Um, again, from an equity holder's perspective, you get stuck in a name like this because there really is no financial engineering that's gonna change the story yep. significantly. There's no large transaction, you almost can't buy back enough stock, and it really does boil down much more to the fundamentals. When it comes to the credit side, I think it becomes a little bit of a yawner. These names trade super tight and are likely to continue to trade super tight. The advantage with an Apple, though, is relative to a Google or an Amazon is when you have $100 billion of debt outstanding relative to someone else with $25 billion or $4 billion, you're going to get incremental spread for that uh, because technicals are going to be meaningfully weaker. So you could buy Apple bonds 10, 15, 20 wide to some of their tech peers that are lower rated with less cash, lower cash flow trajectories, and still get incremental yield. It, it, you know, luckily, rates have really helped everybody this year. Yep. So when you think about a name like Apple that trades 50 or 60 beeps over a 10-year curve, you think it would be near impossible to get double-digit returns. And in fact, across the Apple curve, you're seeing 10, 11, 12% returns year-to-date. That's going to be tougher as we head into next year where rates are not going to be your friend. So from an Apple perspective, obviously the, the key question is, you know, as they can they successfully pivot away from being really dependent upon the phone to more of building up their services business and, and having that be the growth driver? I mean, we kind of, how do you feel like that's going to play out for the company? Well, I think that's, that's already playing out. The ability to, on an absolute basis, to grow handsets on a, uh, on a global perspective becomes somewhat limiting. It becomes the, the law of large numbers. One, yep. everyone has a phone. Two, everybody believes that the incremental upgrade of a new phone is not that much more. So the way that you squeeze more dollars out of anyone is to put more services layered on top of that phone. And they're doing a fantastic job. You know, services across the board for them continue to grow. And, and I think ultimately, you know, we're not gonna think about Apple as a phone company. We're gonna think about it much more as an application services-based company with a broad array of hardware. So the phone gets them in the door into everybody's house, car, business, and now all the things that we're seeing layered on top are really gonna be the drivers of growth in the future. Tariffs are gonna have a smaller and smaller impact on that as you start worrying less about hardware generating the majority of your revenues and you shift ultimately in a few years to uh, all these services driving the majority. And that kind of scenario that you just laid out, kind of uh, a slower growth, but a predictable growth is great for bondholders, maybe not so much for equity holders, but just looking at the stock kind of flat on a trailing 12-month uh, basis. So equity investors kind of looking for that longer-term growth story, whereas, as you say, it's every day is Christmas for an Apple creditor. Uh, Rob Schiffman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Rob covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.